Well, good morning. My name is Trey Corey. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. My family and I are typically at our Southwood campus, but it is a privilege and a joy to get to fill in for Matt this morning as we continue on in our series, the book of Proverbs. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Proverbs chapter 17, verse 1. That's where we're going to kick off uh, our time in the text this morning. As you're turning there, uh, I'll tell you there was a show in the, in the early 2000s that dominated much of entertainment and particularly the spy genre of TV and movie. I realize Ethan Hunt and Mission Impossible are dominating things right now. But going back to the early 2000s, there was a show, uh, Kiefer Sutherland's 24. Some of you may remember it. Uh, our family referred to it as the Jack Bauer Power Hour. Uh, and in it, every season of 24 was 24 episodes, and each episode was one hour of chronological time. And so the season would, in a sense, be 24 hours, in a sense, a day. And so Jack Bauer, the main character of it, you would never see him over the course of these 24 episodes in what would be about eight seasons. You would never see him eat, sleep, or, or uh, go to the bathroom, but he was constantly saving the world at every turn and every moment's notice. But what I loved about the show, what my wife and I remember most, though, was not necessarily the show, but it was we had neighbors in Dallas that had a very unusual way of watching the show. They would wait for a season to have culminated and finished so that all 24 episodes were ready and available for viewing pleasure or binging. And what they would do in a very unique way is they would work a normal work week and they would try to unwind to 24 beginning on Friday night, at which point they would start a season and they would watch in chronological real time for the next 24 hours. So they would literally watch it starting at Friday night at 7 p.m. through Friday evening, through the early morning hours of Saturday into Saturday daytime, and eventually culminating and finishing a season by Saturday night. My wife and I, and maybe more just me, were always uniquely uh, curious to see how this was going to go for them. And so we'd always try to see them on Friday night at some point in time as they're grabbing some dinner, uh, wide-eyed, expectant, excited for the season. And then we would always try to intersect with them at some point Saturday evening. And what always happened every single season, every single year they did this, is that what began with an excitement to unwind on a Friday night and a weekend after a long week of work would be at some point by Saturday night, in a sense, displaced by blurry red shot eyes, hair that was kind of all over the place at this point in time, an elevated heart rate, and a paranoia that everyone in their life at some point in fashion was either going to die in the next 24 hours or was completely untrustworthy, all right? And so I loved watching the way that they would choose to try to unwind because it was an absolutely crazy pattern and a crazy decision that wasn't relaxing at all. By the time Saturday night hit, they were exhausted, they were stressed out, they were worn out. No doctor would have equated them as healthy at that point in time, all right? But I loved kind of watching their pattern and what they would do. And so we laugh at them as we were neighbors of them at that point in time. But for many of us, as we think about rest, I think we all have very odd patterns by the way that we pursue it. For many of us, we feel like rest or this idea of kind of relaxation or ease is a very elusive idea. For some of us, we are, uh, young, or we are parents of young kids, and physical rest is not really high on the things that were provided in life at that stage of time. Some of us are further along in parenting, and at this point, we're actually taking care of aging parents as our work responsibilities are higher than they've ever been. For my wife and I, we have a 13-year-old who's going into eighth grade. Uh, we have an incoming fifth grader who is 99.8 percentile height at this point in time for his age. And so at our home, physical rest is possible, but it's not the most emotionally restful time. I won't name a name, I won't name a child, but one of the child is a bit like an emotional terrorist at time that wants to take us all hostage, okay? That's kind of what's going on in our home at times. There's an emotional exhaustion that just kind of goes with the territory. 
For some of us, it's circumstances. For some of us, it's life stages. But for every single one of us, rest can be elusive and it can be challenging to find. Either for many of us, we overwork and we just go, go, go. And so it's really hard to stop and to slow down and to take a deep breath and to rest. For some of us, we actually have time and we are resting, but we're pursuing things and we're pursuing avenues and platforms and media and different options that, frankly, though they would seem like they should be restful, we find ourselves even more exhausted and stressed out at the end of it. And so what I want to do this morning is we look at the topic of rest coming on the heels of Ben Kloss's message last week on work. I want to pair these two messages and these two themes together because they go together. You can't talk about work without talking about rest. You can't talk about rest without talking about work. And so we're going to try to pair those two messages together as we think about the natural rhythm and cycle that exists between work and rest, particularly this morning, focusing in on the topic of rest specifically. We're going to kind of answer three basic questions for you. The first is, why don't we rest? Second is, what is rest? And the third is, how do we pursue and build in natural, healthy rhythms of rest in our life? That's where we're going to go this morning. As we go to those places, I want to give you guys two different resources that have been really helpful uh, that I would suggest to you guys uh, as we kind of jump in. I'll come back here in a minute. But two different books that we'll jump in on and they'll highlight that will kind of frame a lot of the material in the message this morning. The first is Mark Buchanan's book titled The Rest of God. Uh, uh, our elders here at Grace have provided a lot of our ministerial staff a rhythm in which we can take sabbaticals, which is an amazing gift to us as staff. In my first sabbatical years and years ago, I read Buchanan's book, The Rest of God. And as we think about Sabbath, as we think about rest, if there's a book you want to pick up this summer, I would say it's an incredible read, a really, really helpful. A lot of his ideas I'm going to try to incorporate into the message this morning. A more recent book is um, John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Uh, if you've not read it, <coughs> excuse me, incredibly challenging book. Uh, will not leave you comfortable, will not leave you without some kind of challenge in terms of your own rhythms. And so those two books together, I want to try to weave together as we think about this topic of rest. Jumping into Proverbs, I want to take you back to Proverbs chapter 17, verse 1, as we think about this topic. And here's what uh, we find in Proverbs as we think about our series to the book of Proverbs this summer. In terms of the topic of rest, here's what we find in Proverbs. Chapter 17, verse 1 says this, Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 1 is an incredibly interesting verse on the topic of rest. Incidentally, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but most of what Proverbs is going to say about rest is going to be on the negative. It's going to equate rest with sloth and laziness uh, and something to be avoided. But in this passage, is going to highlight, in a sense, the value of rest. And what Solomon is saying here in chapter 17, verse 1, is that it is better to be in a house in which there is a lack of provision, there's not even a morsel of bread, or there's very little bread provided, and, and to be in that house where there's also quietness, or it could be translated security, or peace, or rest. And it's better to be in a house that's like that and defined that way than it is to be in a house in which there's great provision, there's great feasting, but there's strife, chaos, and pressure. In a sense, Poverty and peace is great, greater and better than prosperity and pressure. As we think about rest, it's better to be in a house where rest is possible without all the kind of provision than it is to be in a house where there's incredible provision, but there's little rest. There's a great value for rest. And the question for many of us is not the value for rest. We all would recognize we value it. We want it. The question is, why don't we often experience it? The harder question is, why do we often not experience it despite our value and our obsession with it? 
Why don't we rest in what's at stake? That's where I want to start for us this morning. I love what Buchanan says. He says this, thinking about our culture today. We live in a culture where busyness is a fetish, stillness is laziness, and rest is sloth. That we live in a culture, we live in a day and time that is in such an end of, or one end of a spectrum that as we think about busyness, it's like a badge that we want to wear and display to say that I'm more busy than you because I'm more important than you and there's more responsibilities on me, which means I have worth and I have significance. Busyness is like a badge. It's something that we value. It's something we want to outcompete with one another on as to who is more busy than the other person. In the midst of that kind of a culture, thinking about rest, it seems like it's on the other end of the spectrum, as if it's laziness or if it's sloth. In fact, thinking through a topic and this, for this morning on rest, thinking about the book of Proverbs, there's really one, <laughs> one verse that thinks about and talks about rest in a positive manner. Why is that? Almost every verse, almost every passage in the book of Proverbs that's going to talk about rest or sleep is going to kind of see it in the negative connotation as if it's something that's about being a sluggard, something that's about being a fool and lazy. Uh, it feels a little bit to me that Solomon, as he's writing uh, these notes to his sons, is a little bit like how I feel as a father in summertime when my kids have no schedule, right? I don't ever need to say to my child right now in the summer, hey guys, just an idea, watch a show. I mean, just turn Netflix on, you should think about watching a show. Or if I say to my son, hey, bud, I know you're really excited about that new game on the PlayStation. I want you to feel the freedom. Play for an hour. It's fine. Go for it. Right? I don't ever have to have that conversation. Right? I don't ever have to tell them, hey, take some freedom, unwind a little bit. Right? What is the conversation we're having almost every morning as we both go off to work in some form or fashion? Let's have a schedule. Let's have some goals. Let's be productive. And let's build in a rhythm so that we're doing some things productive before you turn on the TV at some point in time, which I know you're going to do. Right? That's the conversation every time, which is why I think as we think about the book of Proverbs, he's not having to tell his sons, hey, guys, chill out a little bit. Take it easy. Rest a little bit, right? That's not at all what he's trying to say. He's trying to correct a different problem. And so for us this morning, as we come into this message, most of where Proverbs is going to take us is going to be avoiding the idea of laziness. But as we think about the scriptures more broadly, what we're going to see is the idea of rest as a biblical one that we're going to see as a gift from God. I want to take you in a sense here uh, to what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 11 when we see the invitation that we get from Jesus to rest. Notice in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, he says this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Matthew chapter 11, as we hit that point in the gospel and the flow of the storyline in the gospel of Matthew, this is the moment in which Jesus is formally presenting himself to the nation of Israel as their Messiah and as their king. And as he pitches himself as their king, as their ruling and reigning authority that would be over their life, that would eventually establish a kingdom on earth, what he's saying to them is this, under my rule and in my kingdom, I'm going to provide you rest. For the nation of Israel that was under Roman oppression and rule at the time, the idea of a governing authority providing rest to his people and his subjects was a foreign concept. So here's Jesus and Matthew presenting himself to them as king and saying, under my reign and under my rule, there is going to be an experience of rest that's possible and that's provided to you. We get this idea further, uh, not just with the idea of rest, but the idea of Sabbath in Mark chapter 2 when Jesus says this, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
what I'm wanting you to see here as we begin to answer the question, why don't we rest, is that ultimately, and we're going to spend a lot more time defining what rest is, that ultimately rest is something that is an invitation from Jesus and that it is a gift from the Lord. The rest is something that we've been designed to experience. It's something that is a gift from God, but there's a reason and a set of reasons that we don't experience it. And when we don't experience it, it costs us greatly. I want to show you, as we think about this topic, what it costs us when we fail to experience it in a healthy rhythm and a healthy balance. When you and I don't choose to experience and lean in and find rest, and we inevitably actually lose time. I love the way Buchanan says it this way. He says that all hurry, all that hurry and haste has gotten me no further ahead. It's actually set me back. It's only diminished me, and my efforts to gain time have only lost it. How many of you at HEB this afternoon, as you bring your cart up, are looking at the, the, the uh, clerks figuring out which line is going to have the fewest people, which line can I get through the fastest, right? You make a choice, and you notice the line right next to you seems to go way faster than you ever, and the people that were getting there after you are going through earlier than you, and you just lose your mind, right? Or it's at a red light. You pick a lane, or you're on the highway, you're on a road trip this summer, you pick a lane, and all of a sudden, everyone's going faster than you, and you're like, oh, I made the wrong choice, so I switched lanes, and then all of a sudden, the lane that I was in starts moving, and you just want to pull out your hair because you want time to go by faster, and you and I are wired to manage our time to get more and more out of it that we can't get more and more time. We can't get more time, so we think, can we be more efficient with our time? And so that craving for efficiency, that tendency to overmanage time, in a sense, erodes our actual experience of time. The analogy has been provided in which if we think of time and we try to manage time, but we manage it and we hold it so tightly that it's like a flower that instead of blossoming, we just end up crushing it. That hurry and haste spins us. Busyness disorients us in such a way that we actually lose time that we're trying to overmanage. It's not just time that we lose, but it's also passion. This is even more significant. Buchanan puts it this way. He says, how much do I care about the things that I care about? Busyness makes us stop caring about the things that we care about, and busyness literally ends up killing the heart. My wife and I spent two years in China as missionaries after I finished seminary some 15, 16 years ago. And the Chinese language is a very interesting one. For you and I, in English, there's incredibly, it's an alphabetical language. It's just about letters that make words. But in the Chinese language, there's actually pictures that denote the meaning behind a word. So here's the Chinese word for busyness. It's at the top. It's in the top box. And it's made up of two separate words that are denoted and combined to make the word busyness. Note it. The left character is the word uh, heart, and the right character is the word death. And as they combine those two characters to form busyness, what the Chinese language is saying is that busyness is a death of the heart. Same thing that Buchanan's saying. That when you and I become busy and we drive and we drive and we drive and we think that our significance and our worth is denoted by how much we can fill up our calendar, not only do we lose time, but slowly but surely the things that we love, the passions that drive our heart get eroded and gutted and we end up losing the very passions that we have. The very things that God's wired us for, we no longer love those very things. We get worn out, spread thin, and the very passions that drive us get eroded, and our heart begins to die. John Mark, John Mark Comer puts it this way, thinking about our inability to love while we're in a hurry, and he says this, that hurry and love are incompatible. All my worst moments as a father, a husband, and a pastor, even as a human being, are when I am in a hurry, late for an appointment, behind on my unrealistic to-do list trying to cram too much into my day, and I ooze anger, tension, and a critical nagging, the antithesis of love. I love the way Comer puts it here. 
He doesn't uh, pull his punches at all. That it is impossible with it when you and I are in a hurry and we're stressed out of our mind, it is impossible for us to love well when we're in that mode. In the midst of college, my college roommates loved to give me a hard time. They would see me on campus, on A&M's campus, darting around, and they would see me walking at a pace that they referred to as my, I was running my two-minute offense. Football's around the corner. You remember what that means. Hurry up mode. I was in a hurry. I was trying to get as fast as I could somewhere. And so they would just mess with me all the time. They recognized I had a different clip, a, a different pace of the way I wanted to move through my day and then move through things. I thought they were lazy and had no purpose in life, but it's fine. We were on two different ends of the spectrum, all right? Uh, similarly speaking, thinking of things now, as we kind of got a little bit older, I recognized because I fell into the whole thing, I found out I'm an Enneagram 3. I don't know if any of you are Enneagram people, but as an Enneagram 3, we are producers. We are the people that love the checklist. I want to cross off as many things in my checklist, and if I can end my day with my checklist crossed off or my email inbox empty, I feel glorious, all right? Like I'm just floating. Like the world is just at my fingertips, and it's all just going according to plan, all right? Uh, we are the people that love to slay the task list, which is why, for me, thinking of this uh, topic of rest and busyness, it's so challenging to me because I want to get so much done. Sometimes people are interruption, right? I'm a task-driven person, okay? And so my wife has taught me, and as we've raised kids as well, there's no quality moments. There's only quantity moments, at which point you get some quality moments within it. I can't schedule or know when the best conversation is going to happen with my daughter. For some reason, they always seem to be at about 1045 at night. I have no idea why. It's an absolute threat to my sleep patterns, but it's fine. It's right. I'm parenting at a teenager. That's what we're doing right now, okay? And so for me, thinking through this topic, this is a huge topic. I love uh, the analogy that, that, uh, that story is told of a uh, upholstery business guy that, was re- that his whole business model was built off of targeting cardiologists, doctors' offices. They are the guys that, have, that are the doctors of the heart. And that what they were doing is their whole business model was built off of reupholstering the chairs in a cardiologist's office. They actually didn't need other markets or other clients. They just targeted, in a sense, heart doctors because their patients were the most likely to be wearing out the fabric while waiting on an examination or waiting on an answer from a heart doctor. I love the quote. It says this, apparently heart patients are so impatient that even while listening to their doctor's life-threatening diagnosis or life-saving prescription, they sit taut and restless, poised to flee, chafing at the delay. At the edge of their seats, and the very reason their hearts are so sick is written in in that threadbare upholstery that they're wearing out as they keep waiting on an answer. Busyness robs us of more than we ever think it does. It seems like a status symbol. It seems like something we want to throw out there as a badge. But what it's doing is it's eroding and causing us to lose time, and it's also causing us to lose passion. Not just passion, but lastly, it also causes us to lose perspective. That hurry and haste spins us in such a manner that we no longer can see correctly or see where we are or who we are, and we lose perspective. Buchanan puts it this way, one of, I think, of the best quotes. He says, the worst hallucination busyness conjures is the conviction that I am God, that all depends on me. How will the right things happen at the right time if I'm not pushing and pulling and watching and worrying? Ultimately, for you and I, when we get caught up in hurry and haste, we lose vision and we lose perspective and we no longer see that God is sovereign and that we are dispensable. Hurry and haste begs us to believe the lie that we are absolutely indispensable, that life will not go as it should go unless we're pushing, pulling, worrying, working, strategizing at every turn and at every moment. Simply put, rest helps us realize that we are dispensable and that God is sovereign. Negatively put it, I'd say this, 
that your sense of indispensability is a direct assault onto the sovereignty of God. Your sense of personal indispensability is a direct assault into the, your belief as to the sovereignty of God. God can't be both sovereign and you be indispensable. One has to give or the other in terms of how you live and how you walk and how you believe. And so for us, I want to simply just kind of ask you as we think about this topic of why we don't rest, why can't you stop and why can't you be still? If you're thinking about your own patterns of work and rest, what are those patterns and, and how does that look for you right now? Are you on the end of the spectrum that is so hard to stop? It's so hard to slow down. It's so hard to put things down. Are you on the other end of the spectrum to say, man, I put things down a long time ago. I haven't picked up anything in a long time, right? Where are you on those spectrums? I think for many of us, we fall more on the side that it's really hard to put stuff down. It's really hard to stop. It's really hard to be still. It's really hard to slow down. For you, why? Why is it? And what is it costing you? I think for many of us, we actually struggle to rest because we actually don't know what rest is. We actually don't know how to define rest. We've not seen it modeled well. And so what I want to do is move from why we don't rest to what is rest. How do we define rest? What does it look like biblically speaking? As we jump into and look through back through the scriptures again, what we're going to see is that ultimately rest is a command to imitate God's pattern. What rest is in its very nature is a command in which we're called to imitate a pattern that God put forward for us first. In Exodus chapter 20, we find this in verses 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Exodus provides us an example of what, it, what the mandate was, was to Sabbath or to rest. That God was the first who worked six days and then he took a seventh day to rest, so he's invited us into that pattern of work and rest. If you were here last week, you got to hear Ben Clausen us, talk us through the idea of work. That God was the first to work and then he invited us into that pattern in which we're called into that mandate to work as well. That work could not have had a more inaugurated inauguration than we see that God was the first to work. It wasn't beneath him. Work was not a curse. It was an exalted imitation that he first stepped into that he brought us and invited us into. Similarly speaking, we see that God was the first to rest. And he didn't rest because he was tired or he was worn out or he was frustrated or disappointed. He rested, enjoying what he had done over six days of creation. And then he took a step back to enjoy what he had created and to enjoy the trying relationship of the Trinity. Similarly speaking, rest is something that we're invited into on the heels of the pattern that God has provided for us, in which he worked and then he rested. Similarly, he calls us into work and he calls us into rest as well. And so it's a pattern that we're to imitate. The challenge for us as we think about it is that often uh, we don't know how to imitate that pattern because we're not exactly sure what that pattern was. And so we're going to try to define it a little bit more. And I think as we think about rest, where many of us trip up is We don't realize it's both an engagement of a certain kind and a disengagement of a certain kind. We often think about rest merely often, I would say, as disengagement. I'm going to stop doing the things I normally do, and I'm going to chill. I'm going to veg out. I'm going to unplug. I'm going to unwind, which is often typically I'm going to turn the TV on and just let the time go, right? Uh, How many of you have had that moment with Netflix where it says, hey, are you still watching? 
I know you're laughing because a friend told you about it, right? There's that moment that even Netflix is like, are you still here? Should you still be here? Like, is this kind of gone past the margin of what's good or helpful? And so for me, as we think about Sabbath, as we think about rest, I want you guys to see that there's a kind of engagement and there's a kind of disengagement. It's not disengagement alone that we often refer to as leisure. In fact, as we think about leisure, I want you to notice how Buchanan defines it and how it's not the same as rest. One of the largest obstacles to true Sabbath keeping is leisure. Leisure is what Sabbath becomes when we no longer know how to sanctify time. We no longer know how to redeem it, make it purposeful. Leisure is Sabbath bereft of the sacred. It is vacation, literally a vacating and an evacuation. Leisure has become despotic in our age, enslaving us and exhausting us and demanding more from us than it gives. I'm the first guy that's going to tell you I like to watch a little bit of TV every night, okay? Um, so just know that as we kind of jump into this space, I'm not saying never watch TV, never unplug, never unwind. What we're talking about is how do we build rhythms that are calibrated with balance, with moderation, in a way that reflects how we're wired and how we actually are refreshed and renewed. And so the problem with leisure, though there's a place for it, is that we often let it go too far and it takes us to places that it wasn't designed to take us. In fact, uh, in a book called uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death, the author quotes a guy named Aldous Huxley who writes in The Brave New World, and he says this, and he's going to write in the 1980s thinking about TV that was coming and breaking out. So he's writing thinking about the impact that TV is going to have on culture and people, and this is what he says, and he's writing in a time that he didn't even imagine that a day would come in which a TV can be sitting in, a, in my pocket on a phone that I can watch with an endless library of options, all right? And so if this is true of TV, it's even more true of today, but notice what he says. He says that people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of relevance and as we would become a trivial culture, having failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions and pleasure. Huxley feared that what we love would ruin us. They recognize that when you take the way that we're naturally wired and you add technology to it, there's a possibility that technology will take us beyond what we're designed for and what's good for us. To amuse is literally means to think or to ponder. So to amuse ourselves means to literally not think or not ponder. What amusement or what leisure or what they're trying to draw to is, is a tendency to engage in something that causes us to shut off our minds and to not think, and to not ponder and to not reflect. And to be perfectly honest with you, in most of my work days and most of my week, I need something that helps me unwind and check out and turn off the mind. But the problem is, we can just stay there for hours. And so what we're going to see with as we think about Sabbath is that it is both a kind of engagement and it's a kind of disengagement. You have to have both. The poet Mary Oliver says that attention is the beginning of devotion. That what rest or what biblical Sabbath and rest is, is not just a disengagement from work and a disengagement from thinking at all entirely, but it's both a disengagement from the responsibilities that we normally carry and it's an engagement in the kinds of things we can't normally pay attention to when we're engaged with all of these things. Uh, my wife and I have been married for about 20 years, and in the course of 20 years, we have a pattern that exists most nights as we're cooking dinner. We try to tag team in the kitchen. Uh, we're trying to cook together, and at some point, it's happened probably 50 times, no lie. We think, let's get some toasted sliver almonds and kind of ramp up the salad, take it to the next level, all right? 
And so we're cooking. These guys are laughing because they know where this is going. We're cooking multiple options, and we put the toasted almonds in. And I don't care how many timers that we've used or how many times we've said, you got the almonds or you got the almonds. We burn those blasted almonds every single time. And I take burnt almonds on a burnt baking sheet out into the backyard because I don't want to smell of the kitchen. Because for whatever reason, as we're multitasking, we cannot pay attention. All of us that think that we can pay attention as we're multitasking, multitasking is a myth, right? What biblical rest is teaching us, what it's calling us to, is that you and I can't pay attention to the things that matter most when we're preoccupied and we're multitasking. And so what biblical rest is, what it causes us to consider, is that we have to let go and drop all the things that we are normally juggling so that we can pay attention to God himself and the things that matter most and the relationships that he's put in his life because we can't do both. In fact, Buchanan goes any further trying to define what rest is and what we're trying to do when he says this. The Sabbath imparts the rest of God, actual physical, mental, spiritual rest, but also the rest of God himself, the things of God's nature and the presence which, which we miss in our busyness. Sabbath is a day set aside for feasting and resting and worship and play. It is a gift from God. It's also an attitude, a perspective, and an orientation of the heart. Such a heart can rest when the world around us is unrestful and it's swirling. I love that quote, thinking about what rest is and how we pursue it and how we define it. Ultimately, what rest is is a disengagement from all the things that we normally juggle, all the responsibilities that we feel are often on us, and it's an engagement, a re-engagement into the character, the purpose, the nature of God, and the blessings of God that he's put in his life that we can enjoy. The creator God created for six days, and then he stopped to enjoy the creation and what he had done with the work of his hands. What rest is, it's not a 24-hour quiet time, okay? It is a disengagement of all the things that we normally juggle so that we can engage in paying attention to him and paying attention to the blessings and the things that he's put in his life, in our lives, as his blessings in our life, and also the things that we've worked towards. To stop and to rest and enjoy. Feasting and playing, enjoying one another, enjoying the church, enjoying our families, enjoying the people he's put in life, and enjoying him. Rest looks very different than we often think about it. It's not just leisure. It's not just unplugging. It's not just vacation. So the question is, if you and I begin to get our hands around a little bit better definition of what rest is, then how do we build patterns to go about it? How do we actually build some patterns so that we can learn what to rest and build a more healthy rhythm between work and rest? What does it look like for us to do that? I'm going to give you three or four ideas this morning. This is where we're going to wrap up. Some practical steps to begin to build in a more natural and healthy rhythm between work and rest. The first is this, and it's not a surprising, but the first thing we do if we're going to build in some rhythms of rest is that we learn to stop. I can't put things down if I'm still juggling them and trying to pay attention to something else. I have to put it down. I have to stop. If you've got a seven-day work week, something's wrong. If you can't stop, if you can't slow down, if you can't take a breath and put things down, then there's something wrong with the way that you've ordered your life and you've built things on your plate. Something's got to go. Something's got to simplify. Buchanan says, we're, diz- we're dizzy with all of our busyness. We can't see anymore. And I love the way that Comer says it this way. He says, the solution to an overbusy life is not more time. It's to slow down and to simplify our lives around what really matters. Told you guys uh, at this point, our kids are going into eighth grade and going into fifth grade, and some of you guys that are empty nesters here are already kind of gone through the raising of kids thing. You know this, we're learning this. It just seems to get busier and busier and busier. 
There's just more and more things. There's more and more things on the calendar. There's more and more things on the schedule. There's things in the evening. There's things on the weekends. I'm like, oh my goodness, like, how is this happening? What happened to my life, right? And then at some point they leave, and then, I, then what? Like, then it's just empty and there's open space. I don't know. It seems like it's probably going to stay busy, right? I don't know what happens next, okay? But it seems obvious that it just kind of keeps building busier and busier. So there's not more time to look for. There's not more time to find. The only, seems, the only option seems to be that we have to learn how to either simplify our life or restructure it or learn just to stop no matter what's around. There's not more time to find. There's not a way to more manage time despite the number of planners, workshops, uh, calendars that are out there. There's just not more time in the day. The only real option is that you and I have to learn the discipline of stopping and putting it all down and not letting it control us and continue to drive us. But at some point, we say enough, and we stop. We slow down. Secondly, uh, kind of related to that is the idea of sleep. I know this would seem natural and inevitable, but I just want to say it because it needs to be said. that you and I are wired, physically speaking, that we have to sleep. And so at some point in time, it's not on a daily basis only, but even at the weekend, you and I have to, can't, we can't just roll on three hours of sleep on a daily basis. Our college students aren't here in town. If they were here in the town, they'd be like, what are you talking about? You can't run three hours of sleep. I do it all year, right? But for all of us, we kind of recognize that there, there is a limitation physically that sleep is what renews us, what resets us. I love the way that Buchanan says it here, thinking about sleep, that it's even a symbol. Our willingness to accept it is almost symbolic of what we believe about ourselves. He says this, that sleep is a position of vulnerability, of defensivelessness, of dependency, that we do well under one of two conditions, either utter exhaustion, because we just can't take another step, or complete confidence that we can sleep because God has things under control. We seem to kind of get to sleep out of one of those two extremes, right? Either we're utterly exhausted, our head sits to the pillow, and there's no conversation with anyone else in the room because we're done, right? Or we get to that place and we can close our eyes and fall asleep recognizing that God is still sovereign, God is still in control, and that we can let go and sleep can wash over because he's got things. Which is why the second step for us as we think about rest and think about a building a pattern of rest is I would argue that part of what we, part of the disengagement is that we have to stop and then part of the engagement is that we have to see that God is sovereign and that we are dispensable. That there's something in rest as we lean into it that reminds us that he is sovereign and reminds us that we are limited and we're finite. Buchanan says it this way, thinking about rest and his sovereignty. He says, the good, here's a good definition of Sabbath. It's imitating God so that we stop trying to be God. That there's something in the imitation moment that we realize, wow, we are not the one that we're imitating. So we stop trying to be God, but we mirror divine behavior only to freshly discover our own human limitations. Sabbath keeping involves a recognition of our own weakness and smallness that we are made from dust that we hold our treasure in clay jars and that without proper care, we break. We're not designed to go, go, go without rest. When our kids were young, one of the things that we would do most nights as we were putting them to bed is that they wouldn't want to go to bed. So sometimes we would lay down alongside of them to imitate sleep so they would feel like it was a worthwhile thing to consider, okay? But some of you who have had young, parent, uh, young kids, you know where this is going because and more often than not, money those nights that, let's say my wife is like, hey, I'll put the kids down. She goes and puts the last kid down and like for two hours, I'm like, where is she, right? And laying down alongside of the kid imitating sleep, she's just out cold, right? 
And then sometime the next morning, she wakes up, where am I, right? That in the imitation moment that she learned something about herself, which was, I am utterly exhausted as well, and I seem to be more tired than the child is. I don't know how that works, but it's working, right? There's something in imitating a pattern of someone else that teaches us about ourselves and about the other person. In the midst of rest, we're widely recognizing and have the opportunity to see afresh that we are not infinite, that our capacities are limited, that our bodies are broken, and then in rest, we're able to be refreshed, to be renewed, but, and to be reminded that there is one who is sovereign. There is one who does not grow weary, who does not grow faint, who's not on and off and fickle, that is steady and consistent and ever faithful and unchanging. And we can rest because he is still at work even when we've stopped working. We don't have to keep pushing and pulling and worrying and strategizing because there's one who has still got his hand on the wheel leading and guiding us even when we stop and even when we rest. That ultimately what rest does is it reminds us that we're limited and he is not, that he is sovereign and we are dispensable. And if that's the case, then the next thing that you and I have to do is we're going to encounter rest. It's not just realizing who we are, but there's going to be two voices in our head that are going to war against us. They're going to prevent us from rest. And if we cannot get to these voices and if we cannot check them, then we have no chance to rest. And their guilt and their anxiety. I want you to think for a moment, when God instituted the Sabbath for the nation of Israel, what was their background? What was happening in their life right before we did? They emerged out of Egypt where they had been what? Slaves. With no off day, with taskmasters that drove and drove and drove. And so now they step out of Egypt into the wilderness and God comes with the Ten Commandments, and he comes with commands, and he comes with instructions, one of which being Sabbath, because why? What does he want to teach them? Though the taskmasters are gone, there's internal voices that are just as, as effective as taskmasters that still exist for them. And if they cannot deal with those taskmasters of guilt and anxiety, then they stand no chance to build in a healthy pattern of rest. Here's how Buchanan says it. It's incredibly helpful. He says it well here. He says, the lie that the taskmasters want you to swallow is that you cannot rest until your work's all done, that it's done better than you're currently doing it. But the trust is that the work's never done and never done quite right. It's always more than you can finish and less than you had hoped for. Sabbath is a stop work order in the midst of work that's never complete, never polished. Sabbath is not the break we're allotted at the tail end of completing all of our obligations. It's the rest we take smack dab in the middle of them without apology, without guilt, and for no better reason than God told us we I love that quote. For whatever reason, thinking through life, it feels like in middle school, high school, college, all of life is down to a syllabus, which there's a class with a set of requirements on you, and you hit the end of the semester, and that class closes, the work is done, and now there's nothing for weeks until the next set of syllabus and the syllabi shock that ensues, right? And all of life through middle school, high school, college functions that way that you run, 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 you hit a closure moment, and then the work is done, it's over, and there's a window in which before you're assigned anything else. And then you graduate college, and it is no longer that way, right? The work never stops. There's always more to do, whether in the workplace or whether in home with a listing of to-do tasks around the house and fix-its that never seem to stop, never seem to cease. Raising kids in which there's always a million more things we could be doing or thinking about or helping improve or helping grow. That the work never seems done at any point it would seem like after college. 
My dad retired, and he tells me he's more busy and more tired than he ever was pre-retirement. Maybe because his wife is running him ragged with a lot of social things. I don't know. That's another discussion for another day. But it would seem like most of life doesn't seem to function in which there's a clear end of responsibility, a clear sense of being finished with something. You and I have to learn to rest in the midst of the work that never ceases to be finished, never stops stacking up, and often just leaves us disappointed with what we got done. And if we can't learn to rest in that, we're going to be in trouble because it just keeps building and it just keeps going and keeps just mounting, it would seem like, as we go further on in life. So what do we do? Two voices that you and I have to get acquainted with and then we have to deal with guilt and anxiety. They say very different things, but they come at us on this issue over and over again. Guilt says what? It says you're not enough. Why do you think you can rest? Do you see what you didn't get done? <laughs> do you see how it got done? Why do you think you're worthy to rest right now when all this is still sitting here? It just drives a voice in us that pushes us and pushes us and pushes us. Anxiety works on the other end of the spectrum that says, if you were to stop, what would happen next? This whole thing will fall apart. Your family will fall on its face. Your business, your career will fall absolutely short if you stop and if you draw a boundary and if you rest. And so guilt and anxiety drive us with very different voices, but they drive us internally. And if you and I can't recognize them and if we can't deal with them to realize, no, no, we are enough. God's invited us into rest because he's still working for us, and he said that we are enough. In fact, we are so enough that he would send his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross because he wanted a relationship with us. And the only work that is finished is the one that the Christ did on the cross for us so that we could have forgiveness of sins and that we could enter into a relationship with a king who wouldn't just forgive our sins but would see in us an adequacy that he wanted a relationship with us and that he would provide us rest in the midst of the mandate and the calling that he has in our lives to work. That king, that Messiah has provided us rest that we can experience if we can slay the taskmasters that drive us known as guilt and anxiety. Many of us will function and fall to one end of the extreme or the other on those two. The question is, do you know that voice and can you separate it out from what God is doing, what he's calling you to? Because if you can't, you're going to be on an endless hamster wheel in which you just keep running and running and running. And we want something different for you. Last step in this process in terms of building rest and a rhythm of rest is going back to last week's message on work. Monday's coming and we got to start back to work. The part of a rhythm of rest, part of what we do is not just stopping and sleeping, recognizing the sovereignty of God, slaying the taskmasters of guilt and anxiety, but at some point we pick back up into work and it's normal, and it's healthy, and it's good. I'd submit to you, uh, it would seem to me at some level in our culture today, we are obsessed with self-care. And it's proper, and it's healthy, and it's good, but at some level, it can also go to an extreme where now we're resting, and we're not choosing to re-engage back into work. That there's a balance, and there's a rhythm here, and it looks different in life stages. It looks different with like things that are going on, especially if there's mental illness and different things but for many of us, we can get so caught up in boundaries, so caught up in a, our space and our self-care that at some point we've got to re-engage back into work and it's good and it's okay. And then there's a healthy sense of being exhausted, having expended ourselves in what God has called us to so that on the backside of that, we rest and we stop. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, we thank you uh, for what you've called us to, that you've not just given us work, but that you've also called us into rest. 
whether it's relationships or whether it's tasks, there seems to be no end to the opportunities and the responsibilities that seem to ever grow in our lives as we walk with you. And so, Lord, I pray this morning as we think about the topic of rest that you would help us to be courageous and honest with our own rhythms of um, if we just never choose to rest or if we continue to choose and pursue it in ways that don't actually help us experience it. So maybe we need to rethink through the way that we pursue it and the things that we pursue and the moderation with which we pursue them. I pray that you give us a, an openness and an honesty before you to let you lead and guide us and speak to us and lead us as you see fit on this topic. Help us to see it afresh. Help us to see it anew and help us to begin to build new rhythms as we step into a whole new school year as well in which we would begin to manage this and calibrate this in a different way. Not legalistically, not enslaved to some external imposed standard, but in a sense internally in our hearts and our minds, seeing an orientation of our heart to see you and want to desire you to pursue you without distraction and to enjoy the gifts that you put in our lives and to enjoy the things that you've allowed us to work towards as well. Help us to pursue it with freedom, moving away from guilt, moving away from anxiety, trusting you that you are sovereign in our lives and that ultimately we are dispensable, fragile, limited, and finite. Lord, may you help us build rhythms that refresh us, renew us, and give us a different rhythm and a different pattern as we head toward a new year. Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit, we pray. Amen.